John chapter 4, as we continue on with Jesus meeting and discussion with a woman at the well here in Sychar in Samaria. Before we do, let me ask the Lord for help one more time. Father, help me now as I speak Your Word. Let what is spoken be only what You have spoken. Let them be Your words and Your thoughts, not a man's words or thoughts. (coughs) Father, be with Your people as much as it is needful for You to guard my mouth and my lips. So guard their ears and their minds (coughs) that they might hear from You and know You and in hearing and knowing, love You. Because You grant them by Your Spirit faith to believe in You and in Your Son and to follow Him. We ask all of these things for Your glory. Amen. <coughs> Look in John chapter 4. <coughs> Excuse me. Not a good way to get started. John chapter 4. Let's begin reading in verse 7 this morning. And we'll make our way down through verse 18 and then go back and cover verses 15 through 18 for our sermon this morning. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. (coughs) Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, Ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman. For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. (coughs) Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, (coughs) you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to life eternal. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. So I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go. Call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, Oh, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. I've entitled the message this morning, The Whole Truth. The Whole Truth. The Gospel is always, hear me, the Gospel is 
always good news. The gospel is Jesus Christ. He is the good news. It's not a plan. It's not a path. It's not words we repeat. It's not even a series of things that come out of a theology book. The gospel is Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is our life and He is our salvation. The Gospel is always the good news in and of Jesus Christ. However, the good news is not good unless and until it is contrasted with the bad. It's not good news until you first know the bad news. There is no need for Jesus in our thinking unless we understand the depth and depravity of our own sin. But once we do, the good news of Jesus Christ really does become good news such that you cannot stop talking about it. In laboring to proclaim the whole counsel of God, it is first necessary to cause those who hear to understand the bad news. To show them their need. And then, to present the remedy. Need must always precede remedy. And so it does here in John chapter 4. The whole truth is being told, both good and bad. Jesus starts where every gospel presentation must start. He reveals the fallenness and the depravity of this woman's human heart. Do you understand that apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, this is all of us? Do do you understand that you were not born basically good? And that because you were born in, 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 into a certain sort of circumstances, a family who went to church, that you were never really that... I was not that... No, do you understand how bad you are? Regardless, do you understand how helpless and hopeless and completely dead in sins we all are? There's no difference in any of us. We're all born sinners. It doesn't matter what... We grew up like. We all stand in need of the grace of Jesus Christ because we really are that bad. We have violated God's law, God's holiness, God's character without even trying. So our own fallenness, our own depravity. And Jesus starts here. He reveals the needy heart of fallen humanity as the Spirit of God must do for all of us this morning. As Jesus speaks to this woman, so must the Spirit speak to us and convince us of what we are apart from Christ. So that who Christ is becomes the exceeding good news to each and every one of us. Jesus here guides the conversation in these few verses in these four verses he guides the conversation and makes two presentations of truth 
to this woman. He draws out of the woman one presentation of truth from her own lips and then makes another presentation of truth by His Word. So first of all, this morning, I want us to see the woman as she presents the truth. We might be tempted to look at this woman and because of what we see in her, we might be tempted to look and to conclude that a woman of this reputation cannot be trusted. Anything she's going to say may only be at best partially true. Everybody in her community knows it. They all understand who she is and they all understand what she has done and what she is currently doing. Her sin is no secret to the community. Therefore, we might be tempted to say along with him, well, you can't trust anything she says. You certainly don't trust your husband around her. She is not one whose life is characterized by truth. And yet, there are elements of truth in everything that she says. Even some statements are more truthful than she can even realize. She's even unaware of how much truth she is speaking. She begins by confessing her need. Let's review just briefly. We read it, but let's just review. In verse 14, Jesus has proclaimed that He Himself possesses a living water that eternally satisfies, not with, a, with an ongoing drink as that well. Remember, He points out, He says, you know, that well you're going to have to guzzle at. You're going to have to drink and drink and drink and drink. But he who comes to me and drinks of the water that I give him, all he has to do is sip. And it's a well of water springing up eternally into life. She's skeptical as we begin looking at her life again this morning. She says, Wait a minute, sir. You have nothing to drive. If that, what, I mean, come on. If your well is that good, that's sufficient. What do you have to draw it with? She's still thinking in physical dimensions and physical terminology. She's skeptical of Jesus. But she's willing to go along and, and play the game and see where it leads. And so in verse 15, notice how it starts. Rather than arguing about Jesus' ability to provide, she simply says, okay, give it to me. Let's see where this goes. Let's see what you have. I'm willing to confess I have a need for which it sounds like you alone possess the supply. So give me that water. Let me me have a drink of this water that requires only a sip and for all eternity it wells up into life i have a need i have a a rather drastic need as it were she's eager the the language is vivid it is an eager request it's a strong entreaty please give me this water she's grown tired of her condition notice what she says in the text verse 15 give me this water so i will not be thirsty in other words i am thirsty I know it. You know it. 
I'm thirsty and I'm tired of being thirsty. I'm tired of the brokenness of this life that leaves me always thirsty. You know, again, she's still thinking in physical terms. But she's tired of those physical realities. So if there is a cure to, to make it to where she never has to drink again, she's willing to take it. Not only is she confessing her need, she is confessing that it is a problem to meet her need. Notice what she says. I will not be thirsty, secondly, nor will I have to come all the way here to draw it. Remember, it's the heat of the day. Remember, it's about noon. Remember, there's no one else at the well, and we know why there's no one else at the well. No one wants to affiliate with this woman. She is a blight on the community. No women trust her. She may have even harmed some of their homes. And not only that, but it is a major investment of time and effort in the heat of the day. Because she can't come when everybody else comes, she has to come at a hard time of the day. And if Jesus can give her water, well, she doesn't have to deal with the guilt and the embarrassment and the shame. And the physical duress of walking long distances in the heat of the day. Sure, give it to me. I mean, this man is literally going to take care of my problem of having to deal with all the people who don't like me. He's going to remove that by this one sip he's supposedly going to give me. So her two problems are revealed by her own admission. Her thirst, herself, her innate problem, and her status that plagues her in guilt. What started as an interrogation about Jesus' ability, remember, that's how we got to where we are this, at this point in the conversation. You know, sometimes that's helpful. You've got to remember where you were. My poor mother deserves sainthood because she... We had many discussions going on, and we went round and round and round, and she would just eventually say, you need to be an attorney, because I don't even remember what we're talking about. You've confused me. Well, it's good to remember. We've got to go back. What started as an... This is where it all started. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's deal with the issue. The issue is this. She doesn't believe. She's, she's interrogating Jesus. She's saying, how can this be? How do you have living water? You don't even have a thing to draw it out with, man. And what started out as an interrogation about Jesus' ability has now turned into her without being told to confessing her need to Jesus. What a Savior. That can draw out of us our own confessions of a need without being directly told to. He draws this out of her. And he's going to use it because as the conversation has turned, so he will turn it again and go to the heart of the matter. And it's not physical water. It's a living water. She doesn't fully understand what Jesus is speaking of. She does understand that something about what he is saying could potentially help her and alleviate her deepest problem her shame. 
Oh, she's not thinking in spiritual terms. She's not thinking of being right with God. She's just thinking about not having to deal with all the other women in the community. And for her, that is as stinging as the dry and parched throat of a Middle Eastern desert region. Can you remedy that? If you can remedy me not having to come here anymore, I'll take it. I will take it. She speaks truth even unwittingly. Now this woman, as we know, is sitting here and she's talking to a man and she perceives him to just be a man. He's just a Jew that's happened to come through our town. Why? I don't know. We know the Jews don't like our town. We know the Jews, as we talked about last time, specifically don't like the women of Samaria. So it's odd. Yeah, I'll give you that. It's odd that he's here, but he's here. He's just a man. But what she's unaware of is that she is talking to the omniscient God of the universe. He's not only hearing her words, he is reading her mind. He is the one man in all of history who could literally read minds. And he knows, he knows exactly what she's thinking. He knows exactly who she is. He knows exactly what she's done. And he's just there to continue to talk. He knows that she is trying to cleverly conceal her real needs underneath her physical needs. And so Jesus is beginning to draw all of this out of her. She has confessed her need. And I want you to notice she confesses next her guilt. We've dealt with the physical. She's kind of kept things on the down low. She hasn't revealed to Jesus really why she would not like to come back to the well. But Jesus knows. And now he's about to turn and help her to understand that he knows, that she knows what this is really all about. Notice what he says. Go call your husband. Wait, 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 wait. I thought we were talking about water. Yeah, go call your husband. Go bring him here. Now, some commentators have said, oh, this is because Jesus, being a man of integrity, did not want to be seen talking to a woman, um, you know, alone. It's not what this is. Now, that's a good idea by way of just practical integrity. But that's not what Jesus is demonstrating here. Jesus is demonstrating something far more. He says, go call your husband. We're talking about water. I know. Go call your husband. Go call your husband. And with that one statement, Jesus is going to cause her to reveal not only her need and confess that, but confess her guilt. Not guilt among the community, but guilt before God. Her sins before God. Has she sinned against the community, women and men with whom she has been adulterous or ruined homes or marriages? Certainly she has. 
but her greater offense and her greater sin is before God. Just as David says in Psalm 51, he has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He has killed her husband. He has sinned against his fellow man. But what is David's prayer? Against you and you only have I sinned. I start with you and then I move to those whom I have sinned against. Now, all of us sitting in the room this morning, unfortunately, because we live in a fallen world, a broken world, a sinful world, we have all known what it is to be lied to. Being lied to, every single one of us, and we know we hate that, don't we? Nobody likes being lied to. You feel angry, you feel dirty, you feel all sorts of emotions. We are, even, even the, 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 the people with the lowest morals still don't like being lied to. They don't mind lying, but they don't like being lied to. But we also know the frustration of being told partial truths, which are whole lies. Right? Oh, yeah, I don't like it when somebody... Like, do you like it any better when they only tell you partial truths? Because partial truths usually end up getting you in more trouble than just an outright lie. And so Jesus begins to deal with her, and now we're dealing with not telling the whole truth, but partial truths. But even in that partial truth, there is enough truth to continue on. Seizing upon her statement, Jesus is clear that nothing can conceal the truth from the mind of God. Hey lady, go get your husband. Bring him here. Go get him and bring him here. Go bring him and come here. In orderly yet urgent fashion, Jesus lays out the steps for this woman. In case we're unclear, here's what you need to do. Hold my hand and explain it to me like I'm two. I want you to go home. I want you to get your husband. And I want you to bring him here. Very clear. Very three distinct steps Jesus gives her. Now, go do that. Go home. And behind a smiling face that says, oh, yeah, sure, I'll go home. Is the reality that this place that this woman pillows her head every night is not really home. It's simply a structure. It's a house. That's where she gets her mail. But there is nothing of home here. There is not the comforts of peace, of a life lived right before God. Even there in that place that Jesus refers to as home for her is a place of torment for her conscience knows everything that transpires in that home with that man is an affront to God. She knows it. And so it's not a place of peace and rest as homes are intended to be in God's plan. 
is a place of further torment. And this time, the torment is not publicly at a well, but it's privately in the home. But it's torment nonetheless. And he says to her, go call your husband. And then, once you get your husband, bring him with you. Come here. To this place, to this well. Say more on that in just a moment. But in that second command, Jesus now does what only he can do. He sets up an impossible situation. What would humanity do? Humanity would want to make it as easy as possible on her, wouldn't we? Because we're afraid that we won't get the results. If, if we offend her now, if we just come out with the, uh, I mean, we, you know, let, let's finagle this thing to where we end up with the right outcome. Jesus does the very opposite. He throws up roadblocks. He makes it harder. He, 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 he creates, we've gone from a difficult situation now to an impossible situation. But remember, he's God. There's no such thing as impossible for him. There is for her, but not for him. It's like Abraham that we talked about in the Sunday school hour. What seems impossible to men is possible with God. It seems like an irrational, immoral thing to do for God to tell Abraham, go sacrifice your son. Yet Abraham knows in God's perfection, there will be a perfect resolution to that command even though it makes no sense to us whatsoever so jesus sets up what to her will seem to be humanly an impossible situation he doesn't just say hey go you know go call the husband he says go call your husband don't call a husband go call your husband and bring him here I came to the well at noon to avoid this. And now here's this man that's not from here, doesn't know me, and now he's telling me, go get your husband. Doesn't he know I don't have a husband? The knife of conviction is plunged into her soul. And Jesus begins to twist so that the infection of sin may be exercised from her and grace and mercy may be extended to her. But first, she must confess her guilt. Her need. Her sin. Don't go simply call another man. Go call one who legitimately belongs to you. Jesus isn't going and saying, say, hey, come tell your husband simply to get a drink. He knows there is no husband. He's not interested in the husband's thirst, physically speaking, being quenched. He is simply presenting an unvarnished provocation, conviction, and smiting of her conscience. Before she can hear the good news, she has to hear the bad news. 
before she can experience saving grace, she must admit what is sinful that is requiring saving grace. And so he says, go get your your husband and bring him to me. He is revealing the cancer of her sin so that it can then be cut out. This is how the grace of God works. I thought grace was all good and happy and feel good kind of stuff. No, grace starts unbeliever with you realizing you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That's the bad news. You are a sinner in need of a Savior. Grace then turns and provides that Savior. But Jesus provokes the conscience. He smites the conscience. Not by being ugly. Notice how Jesus does it. He is not being hateful or rude to this woman. He's, you've heard me say it before, an accusation hardens the will, but a question pricks the conscience. He pricks the conscience. And it doesn't take much. Just go call your husband. And all the guilt floods. She knows. He's revealed her sin so that he can come back and respond with a sufficiency of grace she could never have before imagined. The world, in part, hates conviction of sin. Here's why the world hates the conviction of sin. The world hates the conviction of sin because there is no grace in the world that can quench that conviction. Why does the world not want to be told they are sinners? Why do we all in our natural state hate being told we are sinners? Because we understand that in our world and in our realm and by our efforts, there is no resolution for that sin. But praise God, that's not how it works when Jesus shows up. He pricks the conscience. He reveals the sin. He says, boldly confess your sin because in Him there is forgiveness for all sin. What a God. How different than the world. That's why I pray as I do on Sunday mornings. It is a grace of conviction. And we can come boldly to the throne of grace and say, I have failed. But I am not fearful because I know whom I am speaking to. And He is the forgiver of sin. Not that I sin willingly or because I want to love my sin, but I am not afraid to tell you who I am or what I've done, Lord. Because I know who you are. And that's even bigger and more important than who I am. Jesus is different. The Gospel is different. There is a godly sorrow that understands the tragedy of sin but is also unafraid to boldly confess it because we understand there is a grace to cover it. Confession is the platform upon which God's grace shines as the singular, sufficient Drink of living water that it is. The remedy gives us confidence 
as to the diagnosis. When you understand what the remedy is, you're not afraid of being diagnosed with anything. You're not afraid of bringing any sin to the Savior because you know how potent that drink of water is. How many people do you know? Maybe you're one of them. But who avoid the doctor like the plague because you're afraid of what he's going to tell you. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear about a tumor. I don't want to hear about diabetes. I don't want to hear about any of that. It's scary, and it is. Why? Because we're afraid we, we might go to the doctor and he might say, you know, this is something we've never been, we, that we've never seen before, and there's no cure for it. That's what we're really afraid of, isn't it? Because if we go to the doctor and he goes, oh, you have this, you have this, you have this, and here is how we treat that. I'm not afraid at that point, am I? Because I know there's a treatment to deal with the problem. And I don't have to fear going to the doctor because I know he'll not only diagnose me, I know he'll help me. So it ought to be with our sin. I'm not afraid to tell Jesus anything because I know Jesus has a stronger cure than my sin. Thomas Brooks, the great Puritan, that said, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. Praise God. There is more living water in one word from Jesus than physical water for all generations down in that hole in the ground. When we know the viable cure exists, we will readily confess our sins. Jesus is bringing her to that point. I want you to notice this. Some have well noted that that in saying to Jesus, uh, Jesus saying to her, "Go and call." That is a smiting of her conscience. He has just cut her wide open and revealed the cancer of her sin. She has no husband. She knows she doesn't. She knows it's not a legitimate home that she's now living in. All of that is laid bare in her mind. Jesus has just hurt her feelings. But notice the last command Jesus gives her. Come back. Come back. There's the grace of God. Come back. I'm not casting you off. I'm inviting you back. And oh, by the way, don't just come back yourself. Bring that other sinner back with you. There's help for him too. It reminds me so much of the Old Testament and the New Testament contrast where where in Exodus, the children of Israel, you remember, they come up to Mount Sinai where God's going to give the law and the mountain is thundering and it is lightning and there is smoke and there is fire and the earth quakes and God says to the children of Israel, don't even think about coming to the mountain. You touch it, you die. Your animals break through the fence and touch it, they die. Your kids are out playing, they touch it, they die. Don't come near me, I'm holy. You can't come near me. Fast forward to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. 
And he says this, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. No longer does God say, stay away. God says what Jesus says, come. Come and welcome. There is a cure for your thirst. There is forgiveness for your sin. And it's right here. A.W. Pink says, go and call provokes the conscience. Come proves the victorious nature of His grace. Her religion, as all religion does, has taught her to stay away from people, to stay away from priests, to stay away until she could improve herself morally to the point that she was okay to come. That's what religion tells you, but that is not what the Savior tells you. Religion says go and do. Jesus says already done and come. That's your orders. That is not an invitation. I am telling you what to do. Imagine Jesus for a moment. Saying to this woman, would you like to? What would her answer have been? I'm not coming back. I don't want you to know what I do. I don't want you to know about all of this. I'm not coming back. No, sir. Jesus doesn't give her an option, does he? He issues it in the imperative command. You come back here. But he's not doing it to be mean. He's doing it to demonstrate his love. Jesus doesn't invite. Jesus commands, come and welcome. There you will find rest for your soul. What a Savior. Christ says that we are unimprovable, so come anyway. You can't improve yourself, just come on down. Pink goes on to say about this conversation with Jesus. He said he provided truth for her conscience and grace for her heart. Truth for the conscience and grace for the heart. What a tremendous gift Jesus gives her. And it can't be drawn up out of some old well that Jacob dug. It comes from the mind of God, from the person of God, from all eternity past. If you're here this morning as an unbeliever, still living in your sin, like this woman was, ashamed of what your life is, know this, you can't hide it from God. He already knows. And His command to you this morning is come. Come and confess so that you you can find forgiveness in life. I've got something far better than trying to hide your sin. I've got resolution. I've got a wiping out of your sin. Far better to confess what we know to be true, what we know that God knows to be true, and to believe in God's remedy in Christ and experience the forgiveness of it than to try to continue on lying to ourselves, trying to lie to God, to convince Him. Now notice in verse 17, uh, the woman plays games. 
She's guilty of partial truths. Notice what she says. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Oh, technical legality achieved. She had told sort of the truth. She doesn't have a husband. She has a man. No, the Greek word is the same for both. It could be a play on words. You could use it for man or you could use it for husband. She, for her purposes, chooses to exploit the flexibility of the word and its potential for dual meaning to say, oh, no, 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 don't have a husband. Don't have one of those. And she's not lying. You know, we might say she's not wrong. But she's also not right. And God doesn't require just not not being wrong. He requires us to be right. Truthful. Let every man speak truth, forthright truth with his neighbor. Just talk about it. Tell the truth. The truth sets you free. So she plays the semantic word game here. Very political, very postmodern of her. Parsing words like this. Well, what's the definition of husband-man? I mean, what's the difference? Jesus says, ah, let's move past that. We both know what's going on here. Mankind may play games of ignorance, but the Holy Spirit will only deal in truth and then in grace. And he gives it at the point that it's needed. As Murray Harris observes, she does not have a husband, but she has treated a man as if he were her husband. The ramifications are tremendous here. She doesn't lie, not technically, but she's not actively telling the truth either. God is not content with with her not lying. He expects truth. Ephesians 425, laying aside falsehood, let every man speak truth with his neighbor. The violations are rampant for her. She has committed adultery or immorality or both. She has now borne false witness before the living God to his face. She has stolen that which had not been hers from other women. She has no doubt envied and coveted that man before she took him. The violations of the law and what James says in James chapter 2, verse 10 are absolutely true in her life. If the man offends the law in one point, he's guilty of all. Her conscience, her guilt is laid bare. It is overwhelming. Now I want you to remember this. She being a Samaritan woman as a good Samaritan would have been, was a conscientious believer of the Ten Commandments. They held to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, but not the rest. So Jesus uses her own belief. She believes in the law, and now Jesus is using that to help excise the sin and the confession. Not only had she violated the Ten Commandments, which at this point are vexing her conscience, she has also violated the traditions of the day. And now you may have looked at this and says, now Jesus says 
that she's had five husbands, what if, theoretically, hypothetically, she had had the unfortunate position in life to have married five men who had died? Couldn't she just keep remarrying? I mean, is there a problem there? Not biblically, but culturally there was because the rabbis in Jesus' day taught that even in the case of death or legitimate divorce and remarriage, a woman could be married no more than three times. Even in the case of death. And Jesus just helps her to see five and we're working on number six. But the reality is that this is not a legitimate death and remarriage kind of a thing. This is something altogether. This is immorality. This is adultery. This is everything you think it is. And so Jesus now seizes upon the tidal wave of guilt that is gripping her soul. The bad news. And Jesus makes his presentation of truth. But unlike this woman, it's not partial truth, it's whole truth. He doesn't withhold the truth because that would be unloving, unkind, and ultimately unsaving for her. He begins by pointing out the one point where she had told the truth. Notice what he does. He says, well, you have correctly said I have no husband. What a gracious Savior. He doesn't take a baseball bat and beat her over the head and say, you... Terrible woman. You woman of ill repute. You woman of the night. Yeah, I read about you in Proverbs chapter 7. That's what you are. He doesn't do that, does he? He goes, let's talk about this. You are correct and you say you have no husband. He's gracious. He continues that pricking of the conscience. Doesn't he? You've correctly said that. But, but let me go further than that. I'm going to tell you, you've had five husbands. <gasps> and you're now living with a man as if he were your husband, though he's not. <gasps> you see, dear lady, that's the whole truth. This is what it really is. You made one point correct. He's not your husband. But that implies even worse for her. He is a man without a covenant living with her. Problem. Red lights. Red flags. She does have that. And that is a problem. She knows it and Jesus knows it. And so Jesus then moves in to expose more of the human heart that should leave each of us trembling with fear. What fear? The fear of sin. The fear of sin's deceitfulness. You know, sin is never honest with you. Sin's never honest, is it? Sin never raises its hand and says, hey, this is sinful. This is wrong. It will destroy your life. It is an affront to God. You will be under God's judgment. Sin never does that, ever. It's deceitful. It rationalizes itself. It justifies itself. It says, well, you have a right to feel this way. And you have a right to do that. And is it really that wrong? I mean, 
play the semantics game? That ought to terrify each of us. Our own heart is so deceitful. It is desperately wicked. And in this woman, like our temptation to do is to parse our sin as quickly as this woman did. Notice how quick her response is. Go call your husband. Oh, I don't have one. That didn't take long. She didn't have to go home and sleep on it overnight and think, now what am I going to say to him? It's just instant we can excuse sin. That's the, 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 the fallenness of our own hearts. We are natural at covering sin. We are proficient at covering sin. And it is scary that we can do so. Watch little kids. They learn to lie and they learn to lie fairly well pretty young. Because of the deceitfulness of their own hearts. The sinfulness of their own hearts. And this woman has had years to refine that and practice that. And so Jesus does something staggering now. He enumerates her sins. One, two, three, four, five, and now six. Lady, I know you have no husband. The one with whom you are now living is not your husband. This much you've truly said. You've truly said that only God can do that. Only God knows. And so we may well think, well, we've hidden it from so-and-so and we've hidden it from so-and-so. God knows. God sees right through it. He cuts right through it. And He doesn't do it because He hates us, because He wants to torture us but because He loves us. Because to cure the sin is to first expose the sin. And that He does, and He does lovingly, and He does well here. Let me ask you a question. Do you even know how many times you sinned in the past week? Well, I know I did this. And I knew I did that. And then there was the other thing. Oh yeah, and then there was that because of that thing. But did you live every moment in faith? Whatsoever is not of faith is of sin. Did you live not only withholding the negative, but did you fulfill all righteousness, all the positive aspects of what God required you to do this past week? How many of you know every time you didn't... The reality is we can't even count our sins. And yet God in His sovereign, gracious omniscience knows each one of them. He's named them. Even when we're so dull that we can't, He does. Our own hearts are so wicked, so desperately deceitful. But notice that Jesus does not revoke His command. He still says, come. He doesn't scratch His head and go, you know what? On second thought, I didn't think about this. Just forget it. Go home and stay there. And be vexed by your 
He doesn't do that. He still says, come. Because there's healing here. There's forgiveness here. There is wholeness here. There is being right with me. Right here. It's available to you. Bring Him to. The more sinners, the merrier. Bring them here. And what you think me knowing was something, watch what I do to your conscience and your guilt and your shame and your condemnation and your sin. Watch that. It harkens back to just a couple of chapters earlier when Jesus is calling His disciples. And remember, Nathaniel comes. And Jesus says, yeah, I saw you when you were sleeping under that tree. Wait a minute, how do you, you hadn't seen anything yet. Hey woman, big six, bring them all here. How do you know that's not important, just bring them. I've got solutions. I've got a fountain of living water. Hey, listen, sinner, you are so much like this woman. I am so much like this woman. We don't even realize it. We skim by the voluminous and voracious sin in our own hearts such that you don't even know what you did last week. But I guarantee you it's more than you think. It's more than I think. We find one outlier, one caveat, one misslip, one technicality that we think is going to declare a mistrial before God, not so. Because it's not just one thing, it's everything. And Jesus knows. It's no momentary lapse in judgment, it's a total absence of anything good. There is none righteous, Paul says in Romans 3, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who does what is right. None! It's not one thing, it's everything. It's not a momentary lapse, it's a total absence. It's not compartmentalized cancer, it is metastasized cancer that is everywhere in every organ of our spiritual bodies at stage four. And hospice is coming. That's the severity of sin. And Jesus doesn't say, go and stay away. He says, come. Come to the fountain of living waters. Jeremiah 2, My people have committed two great evils against me. They have forsaken me and dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns which can hold no water. What does God say in response? Come to me, the fountain of living water. What can you say before an omniscient and holy and loving God? God loves us enough to uncover the problem and and to provide the cure. I know He does. You see, what this lady could not have possibly fathomed is that he was not there only to live or to to diagnose her problem. He was there to live a righteous life for her. You know when 
you're convicted of sin and, 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 and God brings to mind and he says, you know, you did this and you did that. And instantly you say, I should have never done that. I should have never uttered that harsh word. I should have never had that evil thought. I should have never done this, that, or the other. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's so much worse, isn't it, than you thought it was? Yeah, it's so much worse. It's okay, I'm here. Come. I provide the cure. Have you been playing on technicalities, trying to ignore the bad rather than confess it openly before God so that God might forgive it liberally? Now, I don't want to steal my thunder from next Sunday, but look at her response. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Oh. So much more than a prophet. Yes, I am, but I'm so much more. You come back and we'll see. You'll see that I'm not only a prophet, because what were the prophets keen to do? They were keen to point out the sins of people, weren't they? Always declaring woes. I'm not just a prophet, I'm a priest. I don't just bring you God's condemnation. I bring you God's forgiveness that she might be made right with. You hadn't seen anything yet. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Well done. All those sins, bring them here. Do you understand that Jesus, who sat by the well on that day, who was alive this morning at the right hand of his Father, do you understand he was no ordinary man? He came to live the life for her that she could never live. He came to live it for her so that in place of her sin, He could give her His perfect righteousness. Remember, I said it's not only what we do that we're not supposed to. It is the things that we should do and don't. Yeah, Jesus did all of those. And all of that perfect righteousness that Jesus did at all times pleasing the Father. Not by, by just not doing certain things, but by doing the right things. Jesus says, here, my, this is mine, but it's yours. By faith. How could the woman, he's no ordinary man. He is one who came to live in her place, to die in her place, to pay for the neglect and the want of doing righteousness and then give her perfect righteousness that did fulfill the law. Both positively and negatively, he does it all. Oh, and do you happen to remember her first, maybe little snarky comment to Jesus? Well, if you could do that, you'd be greater than our father Jacob. Excuse me, ma'am. I'm no Jacob. You can't imagine how much greater I am. I'm no Jacob. Jacob bows to me. This well means nothing compared to what I give. 
So come and welcome. Drink from the water that I give and you will never thirst again. And by the way, the physical thirst that you will continue to have until you come home with me, you'll not have to come in the heat of the day for anymore. You can come with all the other women because you've been forgiven. The guilt's going to be gone. You can drink when everybody else drinks. You can live without shame because you met a man at a well. Let's pray. Father, such grace is absolutely overwhelming and astounding. What grace is mine? What grace is ours? That you, the God who knows all, does not push us away, but commands us to come and to drink from the well of Christ. that satisfies longings and forgives sins of which we cannot even possibly be aware because of our finiteness. Because of our limitations. You are so much more than a prophet. You're God. You're God in human flesh and now glorified human flesh Lord Jesus you sit this very moment not at a well but on a throne and you still bid us to come not to a well but into the very presence of God himself without shame because you offer to all who will believe perfect fulfillment and perfect righteousness apart from our own selves We see where that leads us. And so, gracious Spirit, convince us of the beauty of Christ in these verses. Cause us who know Him, who have been forgiven by Him, having visited the well before, cause us to rejoice and cause those who've never believed, who like a patient avoiding the doctor because they're not sure there's a cure, convince them that there is a cure and that they can come and be honest and open. You know it anyway, but to confess their sins, lay them at the feet of Jesus, the great physician, and let Him heal them. And when we come in faith like that, we know You do. Not that you just simply will. There are too many people who have experienced that you do it and have done it. So convince those who need Christ that you'll do it again. We love you, Lord. And we can only say that because you loved us first. And though it were not a physical well, for those who know You, You set up the perfect meeting place and the meeting time for every one of us to come to know You.
you can't fail. You're gracious and glorious in all that you do. And we praise your holy name for it this morning. It's in your name, Jesus, that we acknowledge these things by the power of your Spirit. Amen.